The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Kate Fletcher, Kate Spider. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It was great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the big red bus. It is fueled up, it's been serviced, we've had a couple of runs with it. Everything seems to be going pretty good at the moment. If you're new to the bus, what do we do here on this little program? Well, it just turns out we find a wide variety of people who are interesting in, in, and they've got some point of view, they've got their mojo working in some aspect of their life. And we cover business and creativity, we cover performance, product, a whole bunch of stuff. And if they've got their mojo working, then we want to know what they've done to get it and how do we get some of that. This week, we're heading to Courage Town, due north to discover the Courage Map, the 13 Principles for Living Boldly, but uh, more on that soon. Thank you and a big hello to our Patreon supporters who are in the VIP seats on the bus. Just push APs, empty cans out of the way. Uh, Without your help, it's fair to say the bus would literally have no gas. So thank you to our Patreon people. We are forever indebted to your support week in, week out. Good on yous. Uh, the crew's all on board. Robbo, the bus is in gear. Do you know where the uh, new electric starter button is? I don't know where the new electric, star- electric starter button is, but you know what we also need to t- discuss? We need to get a bit more green. We need to start using, you know, bio oil or something like that in this bus rather than the diesel. What was that green liqueur when I was a kid? Your parents had finished dinner. Creme de Monde. <laughs> oh, God. I could even, even smell it I right know. now. Blech. God, that disgusting. Disgusting stuff. Robbo's remarkable facts. It's about time. Let's go. I got a bit excited this week. Uh, we did a great interview with a gentleman called Bob Berg uh, last week, which we will be playing next week, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, leader of the schedule. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a moving it's a moving feast. <laughs> I got a little bit excited and uh, and went onto Bob's website and then ended up digging a bit deeper into sales and thought, hmm, there might be a remarkable fact here. So does the name Joseph Samuel Girardi mean anything to you? No, got nothing. Well, he's the Guinness World Record holder for selling the highest amount of cars in one year, 1,425 cars back in 1973. But that's not the only remarkable thing about this chap. Just have a listen to his story. He was a high school dropout and started working as a shoeshine boy 
then worked as a newsboy, a dishwasher, a delivery boy, a stove assembler and a home building contractor. Then at the age of 35, and in his words, purely on a whim, he walked into a Detroit car dealership and begged the sales manager for a job. After a bit of fast talking, he scored the gig and sold a car on his first day and by the end of the second month was doing so well... Some of the other salesmen complained and got him fired. His next job was at a Chevrolet dealership in Michigan where he set consecutive sales records over a 15-year period and sold a whopping 13,001 cars in that time. A feat that didn't go unnoticed, so much so that in 2001, he was inducted into the United States Automotive Hall of Fame. Joe also wrote five books on sales and did the speaking circuit for years. In fact, you'll still find how to sell anything to anybody, how to sell yourself, how to close every sale, mastering your way to the top, and Joe Ghiardi's 13 essential rules of selling on the shelves of your local bookstore if you're interested. Not a bad effort, boys. I wonder if Chev looked after him with a few new cars at the end of his career. Don't know. Don't know, but I'm just wondering if he was selling the books or did they sell? Ooh. That's a good question. It'd be interesting if the books didn't sell. <laughs> I remember back in 20 years ago, I read a book called Customers for Life by Carl Sewell. And he was in the Guinness Book of Records and he was a Chevy car salesman. And to this day, I still reference him. So anybody I work with one-to-one, I reference him. And it's something that even even today, Jordan Harbage is one of the biggest podcasts in the world in his six-minute networking system, which is completely free through jordanharbinger.com. Mm. It's really interesting. I refer back to something I read 20 years ago, and it may be something Joe does. But Carl Sewell always said that if you sell one car today, you're essentially selling 10 cars because you buy one for yourself then you buy one for your wife, then one of your kids comes through, you buy a car for your kid, then you upgrade your car, then your second kid comes through and you buy them a car, then you upgrade your wife's car or your partner's car. So essentially one sale actually could lead to 10 sales. And his principle was every 100 days be in contact with your best customers. Now, he back in the day he would do send a gift or send a letter or a card or a phone call or refer, this is back in the day, 20 odd years ago, we didn't have a digital world. Mm. And today Jordan has a version of that, which I have now done his course and are adopting, which is just so fulfilling. Yeah, It's interesting though, that car salesmen, whether a sale of, I don't know, 10, 15, $20,000 American would be in the Guinness Book of Record and not for selling widgets. I find that really interesting, but that 100 days, any longer than 100 days, it's too long, and he's short of the 100 days, it's too soon. There's a sweet spot in there of 100 days. So I reckon Joe Girardi and Carl Sewell is worth investigating for anybody who's in sales, and we're all in sales. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Francesca Iselli. Now, Francesca is fascinating. Described as a maverick entrepreneur, A leading marketing and brand strategist, Francesca has built her reputation basically on people say she has this rebellious nature and this desire to want to do things differently. An eternal optimist, as you'll hear, no challenge seems too big for Francesca, who in 2013 was actually awarded the Young Entrepreneur of the Year based on her 
innovation, creativity, and the amount of philanthropic work she does. She sits on the panel, the judging panel for Singularity University, and any of those who've been on the bus with us for quite a while will remember Kayla Colburn, a cracking show, who runs Singularity University in the Pacific area, episode 146 from memory, uh, and has run think tanks at the United Nations to address the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals through entrepreneurism. Francesca sent me a copy of her book called The Courage Map, The 13 Principles for Living Boldly, and said, would it be okay if I came on for a chat? I said, sure. The book was really interesting. Here she is, Francesca. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. When people meet you for the first time and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. (laughs) Well, if it's the question of do what do I do, I run a few businesses, so that's probably how I would respond to the doing. Yeah, it's interesting because you do a wide variety of things. We're going to talk about the book today and maybe some of the other ventures you're into. The, the book, it's called The Courage Map, 13 Principles for Living Boldly. What I'm curious about is you start the book with a letter addressed to courage. Why would you do that? What was the thinking? You know, I just felt like I wanted to, I started the book and ended the book in two ways. So I started the book with a letter to courage because I wanted to invite courage to come play. And then I finished the book with a letter from courage. To be honest, my publisher said it's a little bit cheesy and (laughs) it probably is a little bit cheesy. But I just thought, you know what, I I like it. And I like a little bit of cheese. And so I went with it. And also I started the book with the end. So there's a chapter which is called the end. And then at the end, there's a chapter called the beginning. Just, I I found it clever and maybe a little bit cheesy. If, If Courage wrote back to you, because at the end of the book, there is a letter basically of Courage replying to you. But if once you write a book and you're doing interviews you're decompressing in your own mind what you wrote, you're hearing feedback from people, people are telling you their stories. Quite often author has different thoughts and it starts to frame things in a different way. If Courage was to write back to you today, what do you think it would say differently? Looking over what I wrote there as the end of the book, I still now, I mean, I started the book two years ago it took me almost two years to complete the project. And I still feel like Courage, if Courage was writing to me right now, would still tell me that she is or he is a skill that we all have, that I have and you have and everyone has, and that it's something that we can all tap into. And because it's a skill, it means it's something that we can practice if we choose to practice Courage. And that's what I would assume she or he would say, tell me in that letter. Just remember that I'm a skill and I'm here and you can have me if you want. It, seem, it would seem very daunting for people, isn't it? Because courage really is a word that is used in lots of different spheres. Business, the military, that there is somebody today who needs to face the courage of surgery or just to get through some sort of health crisis or family crisis. I mean, it presents its face in lots of different ways. And people saying or hearing 
it's a skill to be learned would seem quite daunting for a lot of us. Why, what gives you the reason to believe that that's true? Yeah, and you're right. And I think courage is often also misunderstood. And I've been doing so many of these interviews and often people say, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? You know, have you jumped off a roof somewhere or have you surfed some really huge waves? And my definition of courage is that it's courage is not about being fearless. It's about taking action despite the fear and it comes in different flavors. So wait, what was the question? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's just that for a lot of people, we hear these things, Francesca, and to hear that courage is a skill to be learned for many would seem very daunting. And they would say, I'm not that person. And I'm just, I guess, having written the book now, and it took you a while to write it, you're now talking to a lot of people. It's just what what gives you the belief that that's true, that it is a skill that can be learned? Yes, yes. So I have seen, observed, spoken to a lot of people that in my eyes are, um, in, in other people's eyes, are perceived as being courageous in terms of how they make decisions and how they live their lives, even just living a life that is rich and following their truth is courageous. And the one commonality that I have found is that, yes, we maybe not maybe necessarily born, but we may grow up in a certain way with parents that parent us in a certain way that is either going to help us to be more courageous or not. However, the one thing that I have noticed with everyone that is courageous is that they have made courage a choice. And it's this, one, one of the things that I talk about is this, this ability to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, which is one of the ways to help us to be more courageous. Because often when we are asked to make a courageous decision, which could be a difficult decision, could be to change a career or to leave a partnership or whatever it is, we go through this period of uncomfortableness. So it's about being okay with uncomfortable, which is something that I have seen as a commonality of people that are living in a way that is pretty courageous. Do many of us, do you think, misunderstand the word courage? Do you think we have, in its most simplistic form, do you think we have the wrong view of it? Yeah, I do think that there's a little bit of a misconception sometimes where we think that courage means doing crazy things. And I have this sort of differentiation between recklessness and courage. So recklessness is, or or even bravery, courage and recklessness. So recklessness is so <laughs> when we do something that is courageous, but we don't really figure out what the consequences could be. So that would be, for example, I'm Somewhere in Hawaii, I get invited to jump off this cliff into the ocean and nobody has done it before. We don't know how deep the water is. That's reckless if I do it without checking the water first. Courage is different. Courage is, or even, you know, being a bit brave is I go up there and I make sure that people have gone before me and we know that I will definitely survive this jump, but I'm standing up there with my heart racing, my mind going crazy, telling probably a bit of fear going, this is really scary. You maybe get hurt a little bit. And 
jumping despite the fear because I know that I will survive this jump. And then bravery is sometimes even just standing up for yourself or others. And you see sometimes even kids, I, I really adore and love when I see kids, for example, on a playground and then one kid is maybe a little bit not nice to another kid and then maybe his best friend comes and says, hey, that's not how, you know, they probably don't use that language, but that's, they stand up for their friends and that's brave. Is there, say you're standing on that cliff face, say you're about to walk into a boardroom to do a presentation, perhaps you've got to have a difficult conversation, perhaps you've got to have a conversation with yourself that needs a certain degree of courage. Is there a trigger that you personally call upon sometimes when you know you need to be courageous and have the courage to step into something? Is there a trigger you use in that situation where you know you, you, you're going to need to be courageous? I, I do. And I think triggers are amazing. I, I think anyone can use whatever trigger works for them. My trigger is, and I do this a lot when I, I mean, right now I'm not speaking at events because we can't do that. But sometimes when I speak in front of a larger audience or it's maybe a little bit of an intimidating audience and I can feel my heart race. So what I sometimes do is I just stand with both of my feet planted, or even if I'm on the cliff, I have done some of these cliff jumps in Hawaii that definitely got my heart racing. So I just stand there with both of my feet planted and I put my hand on my heart and I close my eyes and I just, this sounds maybe a little bit hippie, but I just feel this groundedness through my feet. And I do this for one or two minutes and then I, I consciously breathe down into my belly and it just calms my nerves and, and my breathing. And I drop, I instantly drop into the present moment. And one thing that I have found through the research is that in the present moment, there is no fear. When we are completely present, there is no fear. We feel the fear when we think about past experiences or future possible outcomes. So that one anchor or trigger to stand there focusing on my breathing and my heart with my feet planted on the, on the ground is really useful for me. The book talks about courage helping people stay true to themselves. Francesca, was there a period where you weren't true to yourself? Was there a period you can remember where you were not being true to your own individual self? Yeah. That is a great question. Yes. And I didn't notice it at the time. It's retrospective now. About 14, 15 years ago, when I first moved to Australia from Switzerland, I started working in advertising, in the advertising, advertising industry, doing strategy work. And for the first time in my life, I didn't feel completely happy. I was like, what? Like, what? Something is a bit off. And I thought, you know what, it's probably because I moved away from home, from Switzerland, and I'm suddenly in a committed relationship with someone, and it's maybe all this stuff, it's maybe a bit too much <laughs> now. And it happened that I felt a bit off for maybe a year. And now looking back, I realized that I wasn't being true to myself because I accepted a position. And it wasn't a bad position. I just accepted a position in a 
in an advertising agency because it was quite irresistible, the offer, but it wasn't following my truth. I felt quite out of integrity with the work that I was doing for the companies that I was working with. So that was definitely interesting how suddenly my whole being feels like something is a little bit wrong here. And it didn't stop until I, I left. I had the courage to leave the career and start my own businesses. Do you know what's interesting? That that statement, <clears throat> are you owning your truth? That's something that I'm hearing, particularly a lot of ladies in business, that, that particular term, I'm hearing a lot of girls talk about that term. How How do you know if you are owning your truth? Such a great question. And you're so right. It is It is a term that we often maybe even throw around. And it even though it seems so simple, it's it's quite deep. Are you owning your truth? And I think especially for women in business, often women think that they have to act, behave, or make decisions in a certain way. And you know that you are owning your truth to answer your question. If you are making decisions and acting based on your own values, not because you care about what someone else is saying or doing, you're making decisions in alignment with you, no matter if someone else is going to criticize you. You don't live your life according to someone else's expectations. You live your life to your own expectations. I think it's such an interesting point. And the book, the book goes down this path a little bit. And one of the other things that I, I, I hear a lot and I see a lot that you mentioned in the book, which sort of bookends that answer is that if you're living in your truth, you know that when you don't need or seek outside validation. And it just seems like a lot of people today, particularly on the socials, either either in a podcast or in what they post or what they write or what they put on LinkedIn is people are doing it all to seek validation. And they use the term owning your truth, but it's almost contrary and it's almost, hey, you should do it. I'm not, but you should do it. And here's what it's all about. But this seeking validation, I think is a bit of a rabbit hole. Oh my God. It is very hypocritical too. And it's, I mean, there's a fine line because, you know, somebody might be talking about owning your truth and and coming from, they usually do come from a good place. But then I guess the, the, the double-edged sword is when you do it, you post about that specific topic or anything, and you do it because you want to, you know, it's about the how many likes and how many comments and how many new followers. That is obviously... <laughs> a little bit contradictory to owning your truth because owning your truth is it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or how many likes you get or if you get no likes or if people don't like what you say but i guess that's on with social media that is a little bit of a rabbit hole and also a little bit of a danger that a lot of people it's almost a little bit of like an addiction i spoke to someone for the book that i just talking about courage and she said she's a an influencer in Italy and she said she had almost a little bit of an addiction for a while where she would share something on social media and then every few minutes she had to go and look how many more likes how many more likes how many more likes and she had to break the cycle because it was so 
possessive of her life almost, of her time. With writing the book, the book was about your journey, the motorbike trip, your career, the research you've done on courage. When you think back, Francisca, how, how has courage allowed you to stay true to yourself? Courage, I believe, from quite an early age has helped me to carve out a path in my life that is unique to me. And one word that I learned when I first moved in English, when I first moved to Sydney, that people would sometimes say to me that I'm irreverent. And I, when I first heard that word, I had to Google it. I'm like, what's irreverent? And then I Googled it. And I, that was already when I had a small team at that time. It was only a small team of maybe three, four people at Basic Manners. And I Googled the word and it, the, the definition I got back wasn't that cool. It was like, oh, it's almost like, I don't remember word by word definition, but it was almost like, I don't really give one about things. And so I asked my team, I'm like... <laughs> I said to my team, is, am I like, am I, do I, do you feel like I'm not, I don't care? Like, and they're like, no, no, no. So the English speaking people in my team and there were some, you know, Euros too. They're like, no, no, no. It's, it's a good thing in the sense of how you live. So I think courage has always allowed me to do things my way. And that's also, I guess, why I've, I've sort of ended up <laughs> where I am now, where I have this complete independence. And it's probably courage also has enabled me to live one of my highest values, which is freedom. Just do things the way that I believe is true. And, you know, one of the people that, that I have always admired from the beginning of, of running my business, when I first started my business, I had no idea what I was doing, came from advertising. Had no idea about business at all. And so I read Richard Branson's book, Losing My Virginity. That was about 11 years ago. And that guided me. And I realized that he is somebody who is driven by courage in a way that is maybe seen as a bit irreverent, but he's somebody who is running his businesses in the way that he knows is true for him. And that's how I've tried to, to live and, and work. It's interesting, in the book, if I take you back to your childhood, in the book you said there was a moment with your mum where your mum asked you to do something or told you to do something and you stopped and confronted your mum and said, do you have a reason? And that seemed to be a pretty pivotal moment. And I guess were you always this irreverent did this irreverent mindset, how far back do you remember it? And is it moments like that that reinforce that irreverence for you? Because it just seems like you, you are somebody who deeds their freedom, who likes to do their own thing. Describe it how you will. How big an impact do moments like that, do you think, play on the character or identity that you carry today? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's those moments in childhood are, are huge. And I think, yeah, there was, there was that one time when my mother told me about that when I did some research into the past. And she said, there was that one time where I was in primary school. So I must've been maybe seven or eight. And I came home from school and I said, can I go play with my friend at my friend's house? And she said, no, because she was in a grumpy mood. According to her, she said, no, you can't go. And, and I just stood there and I said, 
okay, do you, do you have any reasons why I can't go? And she stopped for a minute. She's like, um, no, I guess because I'm grumpy. And so, so she, she had a lot of epiphanies. But I think before that or throughout my childhood, probably one or a lot of the pivotal moments that have shaped my life are probably a little bit more encounters with my dad and my brother, because my brother and I are quite different. He's two years older. My dad and I were very similar. I believe my dad was quite irreverent too, and he was a little bit of a rebel. My brother and my mom were a little bit more on the safe side. So what that meant as a kid, and I remember moments, especially when we were traveling or going somewhere, my brother, who was two years older, he would always push me to go ask for something. He would always say, hey, and he would, he knew how to play me. He's very smart. He would go, hey, wouldn't an ice cream be lovely? It's like, ice cream would be so nice right now, right? And I'm like, oh my God, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Yes, great idea. It's like, yeah, maybe, do you want to ask? You know, do you want to go ask? I'm like, yes, I go ask. So he would always, he would always use me almost to get stuff. And it worked. He knew how to do it. And I also loved it because I was the little sister and I loved to be the little brave sister for my brother who was a lot shyer than I was. So there, I, I think that had a lot to do with how I operate in today's world. So thank you to my brother. Well, just speaking of your brother and your dad, there's a piece in the book and I'll read from it. It said, I was sitting on the floor eating scrambled eggs on toast after a long surf when my phone rang. I heard my brother's voice. That phone call changed the way I looked at life forever. After that call, how did you look at life? Yeah, I think that call, so my brother, this was 11 years ago. My brother had to, I was here in Sydney. I had to my poor brother had to call me to tell me that our dad, who was 58 at the time, had passed away from a heart attack. And that call really just, I feel like I got a, almost like a ticking bomb under my butt because I suddenly, I've, I've, I mean, I've always lived my life all out, but that just almost, I almost went nuts for a minute where I, that happened. I couldn't believe it, obviously, at first, because my, my dad was pretty healthy before then. It was out of the blue. And I had this question in my mind where I asked myself, if I was to die right now, would I be happy with what I'm doing? Because it's quite, I, I became very aware of my own mortality. Before then, I was quite invincible. And then I realized, actually, I could die out of the blue, who knows? And so without sounding too morbid. And that question has been driving me so hard. I, that was the moment where I left my career in advertising, started my own business. And I still often now, <laughs> last night, for example, had dinner with my partner and then we had chocolate croissant and he said, oh, I was going to eat that for breakfast. And I said, and this sounds maybe all a bit dark. And I said, but what if you don't wake up? <laughs> you know, what you what, you never know. You why why wait? You know, and this is sort of a flavor of how I like to how I like to live now. Given that I have that experience where this could finish any moment, 
I don't think he will, but it could. So I want to leave all out. And if I feel like a chocolate croissant after dinner or 10 chocolate croissants, why won't I do it? <laughs> why do I need to wait? <laughs> it's funny, you know, uh, Gaz, that's the same attitude AP takes towards a glass of red. <laughs> I, yeah, I can connect with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting when you're writing a book, Francesca, quite often – Whilst you're writing it for the reader, you are doing a deep dive on yourself. And during the during the writing of this book, you talked about you having to pay special attention to your own thoughts and dissect your own behaviours in order to share lessons with the reader. And one thing that you said you kept asking yourself was, do I have daddy issues? Because I never heard my dad say, I love you. And the reason it resonated with me is we had a Navy SEAL called Andrew Paul who came back from service as a SEAL, hit a pretty dark place and has now pulled himself out of it. And he had two boys to support at the time and it was an incredible story. And I said to him, what's the most important thing we can say to our children? And he said, I love you and I'm proud of you. For you to question that whole thing about you can't recall your daddy ever saying, I love you. 11 years later, how do you process that? How does that affect you? What, do you, what, what happens to you when you think about that? Yes, and I have thought about this so much and then I came to some conclusions and then suddenly through, as you say, when you write a book, it's almost like processing stuff. It's almost like therapy sometimes. And actually just recently I had this epiphany. That was It was so interesting because... Yeah, so, so my dad, obviously, also Swiss culture is a little bit like that. We don't often, I think a lot of kids grow up not maybe hearing I love you too much from, from their parents. And my dad was not very affectionate. And I don't ever remember him saying it to me or my mom or my brother. So I, I don't take it super personally, but of course it has something, <laughs> you know, it still does something in you. So the other day I was sitting down here on the beach on in front of my place and I suddenly realized how I have challenges with when it comes to to men that uh, that I'm with or any man I never ever ever want to feel like I need to rely on them if if I feel like I need to rely on someone especially men if if say I can't work or there's something that I need to rely on them, I don't like it at all. And when I had this epiphany, and, and I then it, I, I went back. Oh, of course, it's because I think that guys are not reliable, and it's not really a trust thing. It's just I think deep down I thought that guys are not reliable, so I don't ever want to rely on guys. I want to have my own show <laughs> sorted. I need to make sure that I, I I have my own income streams. I run my own business. I don't want to rely on anyone ever. And at first, I was a little bit upset about this epiphany I'm like is this a bit sad that I feel this way and then and then through another conversation on a podcast with one of my friends she said I told her I said hey I just had this epiphany and I'm not sure if I should be sad about it and then she said well you can look at it this way one of your highest values is freedom and for you if you know that you are reliant on someone financially, emotionally, any, anything, 
then you don't feel free. And I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that's a good explanation. So that's definitely a little bit of a, a thing from childhood, maybe a daddy issue. For those of us who are fortunate to have people around us who are still with us and we care about, if we go back to courage, Francesca, if, if, you, if you had the opportunity, what do you wish you had the courage to ask your father? I wonder, for me, I don't know so much if I have a question for him, but I think it would be actually more me being grown up enough to tell him that I love him. I never told him that I love him. And you know what's funny? is So I think it would be more of a, a, a statement than a question. And here's the funny thing. When, when he died, I, I think I wasn't very good maybe at expressing love either. And my brother being Swiss, I don't think I've ever told him before then that I love him ever. And he's never told me. I don't even think till now he still has never told me that he loves me. So when when my dad, and again, this is a bit Swiss. So for, for all the English speaking people that are thinking, what? It's, it's not that uncommon. So when my dad passed away, I would sometimes randomly, usually after a few glasses of red wine, I would randomly text my brother and say, hey, I love you. And he would just not respond. He would just probably be a bit shell-shocked, like, what? Like, what the heck? Why is she being emotional? So, so I just started telling people that I, love, that I love them more. And I would tell him the same thing, which I don't think I have ever done. Well, I think that's gold. That's gold. Gold love. <laughs> uh, you said in the book, and we go on to the, the how-tos, you get through this, this sort of situation and also have the courage to face fear, you said, one strategy I've discovered that stops fear from pulling me into an emotional prison is journaling. And what's ironic about that is we interviewed Lane Beachley, seven-time world surfing legend, and I know you love the surf, you love the waves, you love the water, you love the beach. And it made me think that I said to Lane, when you're about to go into the world champs, you're sitting on the beach, and all those negative default voices come into your mind what do you do? And she said, I grab my journal and write down all those negative voices so I can see them and address them. And yet it's funny that you've got a lot of similarities in your love of the beach and waves, but that term emotional prison, I think is really powerful. It's gold. How do you actually use your journal? Yeah. And, and I love Lane. Lane is a friend of mine and she's a beautiful human. So I I, I love that she shared her strategy too. And the funny thing that I found with my journal is that I really mainly use it when I'm going through some challenges or when I need to make a tough decision. So when about two years ago, when I, I was married for almost 10 years, and again, it was a difficult period at the end where I just wasn't completely sure what should I do with this relationship? It was amazing. My ex-husband is an, an amazing human, but I was just confronted with, do I want to continue this for another you know, 20, 30 years or do we need to change something? And so it was a really difficult period where I wasn't sure. I was just confused. And I would, you know, again, this is going to sound very woo-woo, but I would sometimes go to bed and I would go, Dad, Dad, come on, give me something. And then he would give me nothing. Like, come on, Dad, where are you? Give me some sign. Give me a symbol. What should I do here? And then 
I would wake up with no answer. So I would then turn to my journal. And I would I remember there was a period of, of my life two or so years ago where I would just journal every day. I would get up and just write just random stuff. And it was, I don't, I haven't read back, but it, it was just stuff like, Hey, I'm confused. What should I do? And then my intention then was to actually just do this for a few weeks until I have more clarity and maybe go back through my thoughts and see if there are any, any traits in my thoughts, which I haven't done. I just made a decision by, by journaling. And then in, in times where I don't have any huge decisions. I just journal words. In, like right now I have to journal next to me here where I just, I doodle, I make drawings. I, I, I sometimes write a summary of the day. What did I learn today? So I have two different ways of using it. Sometimes when I need to be courageous about something or even a decision in business that I need to make myself first before I ask someone, I turn to my journal and I just write. Just whatever comes to my mind. I guess in recent times, perhaps since you've finished the book, are there any ideologies about courage that have changed in your mind? Not really. I think just the clarity that I have gotten more on, which has come through conversations, is that there are so many different flavors of courage. And there are so many different nuances and what is courage for someone might be nothing for someone else. And it's not about discrediting. It's about each person finding what it is for them that is courageous right now. And sometimes, as you said before, someone's just having a conversation with someone is a courageous act. For someone else, it might not be. Even for for me, sending my brother a message that I love him is... it's a little bit courageous for me. For someone else, it's like, what are you talking about? This is very easy to do. So I think courage just comes in different flavors and it's, it's not, none is better than the other. It's exactly what's working for the person that is being courageous. Uh, I think that's gold. I think that, that framing of nuances and degrees of courage, because quite often we hear and see stories of great courage of people who do newsworthy things which require courage. But to know it's the little nuances of sending a text, having that conversation or saying something, I think that's really and, – and, and part of this for me goes back to your book, and I'll try and put these things together for your view. You said in the book that say you're facing that nuance or degrees of courage, and I'm at that moment and I'm going to ha- about to have that conversation, I'm about to jump from the cliff – I'm about to sign up for a to learn a new language, which scares me. And you said, let's look at fear as a character so we can understand her better. Imagine fear as a freaky-looking alien. When you look at her from afar, she's intimidating. But the more you become familiar with her, the less frightening she will seem. Visualizing fear as a character, is that something that you use on a regular basis, Francesca? Is that something that is in your toolbox that you suggest to people at that moment where they feel they need courage to visualize something or someone, some it? I probably don't visualize her so much or him, but the one thing that I do use and that I find might be helpful for others too is to make fear your ally, not 
not think that fear is against you, but understand that fear is with you because fear is an emotional, uh, a human emotion that is here to protect us. The purpose of fear is to protect us. And that is why in, in the human body and in a lot of animals also, when we feel fear, we either fight, flight or freeze. And it's about understanding that fear is always here to, to protect us in some way. And sometimes we don't need to be protected. That's why sometimes it's just about understanding, hey, I, I see that you're here. Thank you so much. You know, whether it's an alien or uh, whatever form we give fear. Hey, thanks, you weirdo alien. I, I feel you. I know you're trying to protect me. I'm about to take the stage here and I'm nervous and you want to protect me because you don't want me to be embarrassed, embarrassing myself in front of an audience. So yeah, okay, I, I got it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Move away. So it's, it's about not suppressing fear, but understanding that, hey, she or he is here to, to protect us from walking across the road when there's traffic coming, for example, from jumping off a cliff without knowing how deep the water is. It reminds me of a story that uh, we had a guest called Patria King, the beautiful Patria King, and an incredible interview with her. And she told the story of the Buddha. And the Buddha would look at Mara, and Mara was the adversity and the evil and all the temptations to do the wrong thing. And the Buddha would look at Mara and say, Mara, I see you. Come, sit with me. Let's have tea. And would invite Mara. That all that fear uh, to sit and have tea. And it's kind of the same sort of story is sort of being able to recognize at that moment that fear is there and it's going to require courage and embracing it. It's that kind of, it's the same principle, isn't it? Yes. I love that story. I've never heard that story and I absolutely love it. And I think this applies to most things in life. It's, it's not because we all have the light and the dark and it's not so much about pushing away the dark or the past if we had some past experiences that were not amazing but it's about making friends with them it's about making peace with them and that's in that story that you just shared that's what buddha did he's not he's not making enemies he's like okay let's you know let's face each other and and be friends no matter if there's a shade of dark or a few shades of darkness in there Speaking of stories, there is a section in the book that talks about stories. In the book, you talk about how stories can, the word is quash courage, and lead us to live in fear. Did that happen to you, Francesca? Did you have a story that you were telling yourself that was quashing your courage and encouraging you to live in fear? You know, when I started this, I asked myself, what stories do I have that were holding me back. And what I have found, and I don't know, again, this might be some childhood conditioning. What I have found is that I've been fortunate enough to give most experiences that were not amazing in my past twists or story plots that were helping me, that that were fueling me instead of, of holding me back. And that's the thing with stories. I think we all have certain degrees of, of experiences that some are not very amazing and, and some can be very traumatic. And 
we have a choice to create a meaning when something happens to us. And some are, of course, a lot harder to rewire because they're so deep and they're, they're so traumatic. We have a choice to make a meaning from each story. And I, I found that for some reason, unconsciously then, now consciously, back then, unconsciously, I managed to create meanings from stories that were helping me. And, and I definitely remember a few experiences with my dad that were not amazing. And for some reason, I managed to change these stories into beliefs that are helping me or that were helping me back then and are helping still now. I'm very conscious of our time together. Just something which um, is ironic, I guess, that I found in the book that is leading up to a guest who's coming up on our show is you wrote about what if there was only perfectly imperfect and I think one of the, the most beautiful books I've read in the last oh, three to five years was a book by Beth Kempton, who's going to be our guest in a couple of weeks' time. And she read a book called Wabi Sabi. And Wabi Sabi is about being perfectly imperfect. And Wabi Sabi is a Japanese term. Although it's hard to define, people know what's Wabi Sabi. They find it hard to describe what it is, but it's about simplicity over the passage of time. And it's one of those books where I just kept it by the bed and I had to be in the right mood because I poured over every single word. It was just beautifully written and a beautiful premise. But the whole, and I found it ironic that we should be talking to you and then Beth in a couple of weeks' time. And you're both coming at perfectly imperfect from different points of view. And I wanted you to explain to me the comment you made was embrace imperfection and you will be courageous, even when it's easy to check it out. Tell me your view of how we can use this perfectly imperfect in the face of courage, in the face of fear. That book sounds amazing too. I'm going to check that out, the, the one that you mentioned. And I do think that embracing imperfection or being okay with imperfection is one of the biggest drivers to be courageous. And here's the reason why. Our society, we had a little bit of a chat before about how we are a little bit obsessed with social media and, and striving for perfection. And what, what is she doing? What is he doing? And why are they always perfect? But I'm pretty sure that behind the scenes, things are obviously a little bit different. But because we have this comparison trap sometimes, we fall into this obsession with perfection. And when we fall into obsession with perfection, we don't take action. We feel paralyzed. We get stuck in a, in a career. We get stuck in a relationship because we can't move forward. We feel, we feel like it needs to be perfect before I can move. So embracing imperfection is amazing because if we can accept that perfection exists in tiny moments, so I call it momentary perfection in the book, we can take action now. And it's, it's perfect. It's totally imperfect, but it's perfect. It's perfectly imperfect. And even, you know, just, I often, and I use this in business a lot. I often say, hey, right now with my team, this is good enough. This is good enough until we find a better solution. And I heard this interview the other day. It was beautiful. It was with Elizabeth Gilbert. And she said, sometimes she writes 
novel, well, sometimes always she writes books. She, she had a novel a few years ago and she said one of the characters in that book was a bit lame and she knew it. She said, look, I just couldn't flesh it out more. And I just said, that's all I got right now. Publisher said, this is not good enough. You need to work on this character. She said, it's all I got. The book got published. Her reviews were great. Most criticism was about this one character. And she said, you know what? I knew I would get these reviews, but it was perfectly imperfect because right then when I wrote this book, that's all I had. It was perfectly imperfect. If I wrote the book now or in 10 years from now, yeah, it will be better. But right then and then, there and then it was perfect. And I think that's what helps us to be courageous. That's what helped her, that that notion of it's imperfectly perfect. It helped her to publish this thing rather than sit on it for another 10 years and never publish it, which is what most of us do. We sit on something because it's not perfect yet. So just, just publish, go, do it, take action, and then fall over, <laughs> get up, and keep keep swimming. <laughs> it's interesting because I think most people would describe our show, the Mojo Radio Show, as being perfectly imperfect. Uh, and I think our whole motto has been embrace the imperfection. I think we're doing a pretty good job of it after seven seasons. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, AP's caveat on that, well, his motto would be just one more, though. Maybe just one more pop guard for Bertie, just a thought. <laughs> probably, probably it's going on. The, that'll be on a T-shirt by Friday. Uh, but however, here's, here's the challenge for listeners. I would love, it would be, it would warm my heart. It would warm the cockles of my heart to see somebody go to iTunes, do an iTunes review and just write, this show is perfectly imperfect. If you do that, the first person to do it, I will send them a Mojo Radio show, Soap on a Rope. I've still got, I've still got one. <laughs> it's, I have. It's in, it's in the prize cupboard. It is a collector's item. It's the last one we have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks to our merch girl, Oksana. Uh, hello, Oksana. <laughs> I'm going to soap on a rope. I would love to have somebody put up, this show is perfectly <laughs> imperfect, because it's true. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm conscious of your time. Just to finish this up, the book is called The Courage Map, 13 Principles for Living Boldly. Which of the 13 principles is the most misunderstood in your mind? Wow. You have all the good questions. You know what? I think that the principle of non-attachment or detachment can be very misunderstood. It's also one of the hardest ones. And the reason why, so non-attachment means that we are able to detach from certain outcomes, from possessions. And the reason why it's misunderstood is because sometimes people think that, oh, so I can't own anything. I can't, I can't live in a fancy beach house. I can't drive a fancy car. I can't wear my fancy clothes because I need to be not attached to these things. No, there's actually a quote that I share in the book by a guy called Ali Iban something. And he said that Non-attachment is not that you shouldn't own anything. It's that nothing should own you. Very big difference. And especially right now in times of uncertainties, this principle is incredibly powerful because if we can practice non-attachment, especially to outcomes, we are able to be way more fluid in the way that we adjust, the way that we live and work. And so I think that principle is, is the most 
under, misunderstood and one of the most powerful ones. Gold. Uh, if, just last thing before I hand you over to Robbo. Um, if you were, I always find it fascinating talking to authors who've had a successful book up until recently, out doing speaking gigs, you're doing lots of interviews, doing lots of media, you've got your head in the book. And then, as I said before, a lot of people want to share their stories and they want to give you their perspective, what happened to them, and you become the sponge. If you were now to write the book and write the next chapter and write the 14th principle with what you've learnt what would the next chapter be about? What would be the 14th principle that's now come to mind since you finished the book and you've had all this stuff thrown at you? The, the first word that comes up, and it's more of a result of courage and what I've heard, is freedom. I, I think the next principle would be something around freedom, around embracing Freedom in, and again, this is a, such a big concepty word, but there are different flavors to it, and freedom means something else for different people. But that's what I'm getting thrown at more and more as I talk to people who have read the book is that there's this element of freedom when they step into some of the principles, and it's sort of that's the last principle. Okay, this is where I've gotten to. It's funny, and I'll just wrap this up whilst Robert collates his notes. It's it's funny when I like when I speak to people who are putting rubber on the road in that they've written about something and you've done the motorbike ride, you travel, you're successful in business, you're giving back to society through the charitable work you do. But even down to, I heard you say that you live at Narrabeen, you live right across the road from the beach because you love to surf and you've built a lifestyle in order to have your work as part of your lifestyle as opposed to having to work and squeezing everything in on the side. You've actually built a lifestyle that includes work, which may be an outcome from the pandemic. More people may start to say, well, it's possible because they were forced to do it. And they say, oh, actually, this is pretty good. And I think it's what's interesting with that, Francesca, is the outcome of all that is freedom. Like you start to take, you start to take control and you start to live intentionally and I really admire what you've done because it seems like you are actually doing that and you represent all these things we've talked about by having the because it takes courage to do it, doesn't it? It takes courage to build a lifestyle that incorporates all these things, including work, as opposed to just being about work. Yeah, very much so. It's such a great uh, point and it's very impressive almost that you have noticed that in the little time that we have spent together when I started my very first business 11 years ago, I always said that one of my most important things right now, back then, is that I have the freedom and the flexibility to travel as much as I like because I want to feel free and I want to feel like I can go visit my homies in Switzerland whenever I want to. When I was in a job in advertising, I had four weeks of holidays and I don't want to spend them all in Switzerland with my family because it's exhausting. So I decided to build whatever I build around this concept of freedom. And it's never it's never stopped. That's always been the premise of my of my life and how I build businesses. Of course it doesn't mean that I have one hundred percent flexibility. There are commitments and especially now to be honest, right now when the pandemic hit, 
I have never worked so hard. And it would have been, I mean, I couldn't travel anywhere anyway, but it would have been also impossible to leave my teams and my business and just go on the road again and ride my motorbike somewhere because they needed me. I needed to actually step in and go, okay, this is what we're doing and I'm doing it and we're all doing it. So I definitely had, you know, six weeks of not that much freedom. I couldn't just clock off, but it was also enjoyable because it felt like a startup a little, a little bit. But yes, yeah, so I've always had this, this notion of I need to feel free and I need to have the flexibility to visit home, my other home, whenever I can. Here we go. Here we go. Robbo's Nifty 90. Uh, Nifty 90 time. I warned you about this. Yes, I'm a little <laughs> bit, uh, my heart, I need to quickly do my, my trigger pose here. I need to stand. You'll be right. Just like, be brave. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, first, first answers that come into your mind. Lola, start the clock. Three words that you would use to describe yourself. Rebel, irreverent, and graceful. What's the last brave thing that you did? Surfing out here at Narrabin when it was too big for me. Leaves me to my next question. What's the best thing about living by the beach? Oh my God, everything. The main thing is infinity. You look at it, I'm looking at it right now. And the best thing about living by the beach is infinity. Look at the horizon. It never gets boring and all you can see is infinity doesn't stop. And surfing, of course, I love playing in the ocean. Uh, Something brave that you've always wanted to do but haven't done so far. I still would love to, I don't know if it's that brave in my eyes, but I still would love to finish my motorbike journey through South America and then all around the world. I've only done part of the world, so I'd love to continue that journey. And what's the best thing about being on two wheels? The pit stops where you meet the most random people on these journeys and you have these what I call moments of humanity, random random interactions with random people. Nice. If your house was burning down uh, and your pets, family, everyone else who was in the house was all safe, what three things would you take with you? I am a little bit attached to my musical instruments, so I would probably bring my guitar. I would bring some of my crystals and my journal. Nice. Just I've, I've got to ask the question, what, what, what's the guitar? It's a tailor. Nice. And the big question, since we're getting all musical, you wake up in the morning, your feet hit the floor, you open up the windows, you're staring out at the beach, but your mojo is still not happening this morning. What is the song that you go to on iTunes, Spotify, whatever your weapon of choice may be? What's the tune that goes on in the kitchen while you're making the coffee to get yourself motivated for the day? Oh, my God. This is going to sound really uh, daggy, but the song that I would put on to get my mojo would be Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. I really hate the trip, but I got a low. As they cope, I see myself in the pistol smoke. Fool, I'm the kind of cheater little homies want to be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street light. I love that song. (laughs) It's a classic. Yeah. It reminds me of my uh, childhood almost. It's a classic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was the theme to the Batman movie too, right? I don't know. Pretty sure it was. Know. Yeah, there you go. Nice. 
Nifty 90 done. There you go. You've been brave. Francesca, thank you so much for your time today. The book is called The Courage Map, 13 Principles for Living Boldly, um, with a foreword by Sir Richard Branson, uh, big fan of the show. G'day, Rich Bransos. Um, where is the hub for your stuff? Where do you send people to find out more about you, the book, your story, the work you do? Is there a hub? Yeah, I reckon my personal website is probably the place where there are links to all the different things we mentioned. So just go to franciscaeasily.com, a little bit of a different spelling. So F-R-A-N-Z for Zebra, I-S-K-A-I-S-E-L-I.com. Just my whole name. Excellent. Well, I'll stick that in the show notes. Thank you for your time. I feel like we're mates already. Thank you for spending time on our little show uh, and for sharing so much with us. Um, I really enjoyed the book and I think – there's so much more to learn about, Francesca, with the work you do for the charitable work and your journeys on the motorbike, but um, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary and Robo, for everything that you're doing. The Mojo Radio Show. What did you get out of it? I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. What's the so what? After that interview, we probably don't need a lot of prompting, but what's the so what? I took quite a bit out of Francesca's book and talking to her today it's something i've heard before that if you have fear if you have anxiety one of the critical things to do is to move and you move your body before your brain has all the reasons to make up crap excuses and the brain will that's why we don't do things because the brain finds justification but simply by taking the step just by putting your hand up, standing up and saying, I'll do it. When people ask for volunteer, I'll just put your hand up. Before you even have time to find all the reasons not to do it, just do it. And they say the same thing for people who are suffering through depression, anxiety in this period, move. So that's something that I thought was fascinating to remove fear. It helps develop your courage is to move. And particularly if you have a fear held in the past, which they say is kind of depression, or if your fear is about something which is going to happen in the future, which they say is anxiety, I would say move. I also like the fact, the comments you made, which I haven't heard before, that writing a book for her is like therapy. And we could probably do that writing a journal, a blog, a book, writing notes at the back of a pad, whatever. But I just, I find that very interesting. And it kind of ties back to Julia Cameron, which is one of our favorite shows of all mm-hmm. time, which kicked off season seven episode 256 is that interesting there's a hundred shows between the two references i've made to shows a (laughs) hundred shows anyway uh but francesca made the point that when she's writing a lot of the time she doesn't even read her writing doesn't read it back again so it can sit in a journal get it out of her head out of out of her soul and doesn't read it back and it's something julia cameron talks about with her morning pages which are so powerful i um I don't know. I, th- I found it really interesting, and and I stand by it. Sadly, mate, it's the last soap and a rope in the no. prize cupboard. No, go on, oh, go no, on to not. iTunes. Oh no, it's not. Yeah, but yours is half done. Well, I moved. The, I moved yeah, the leopard. I moved the leopard skin couch over the weekend, over in the corner there, and after digging my way through a pile of. Um, Mission Corn Chip Crumbs. Thank you, Mr. Burt Whistle. I found two brand new soap on a ropes in the cupboard, so we actually have three. So. Uh, there we go. We can extend the deal. <laughs> if we get a review on iTunes and you have to use the words perfectly imperfect, it's a cracker. Let's see Just what like happens. The soap. So we'll send it out to you. And at, at, oh, at no expense to the management. 
This is Leif Babin, former Navy SEAL, co-author of the books Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, president of Echelon Front, and you are listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Stand by to get some. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. This is probably one of my favorite pop quiz hot shots of all time because it's very, very special. So here's, here's the setup. If at any time you can guess who this person is, mm. tell me. Mm. Pink Floyd actually wrote a song about her. She was named an honorary Spice Girl. The Queen channeled her for her pandemic speech just recently. And in 2000, she was named the UK Personality of the Century. Anything? Yeah, the Pink Floyd thing's got me going. I know. Yeah, I've just got to remember the name. Give me some more. All right. I'll keep going. Harry Seacom, a great comedian and personality of the past, said of this person and her radio show, Churchill didn't beat the Nazis. This lady sang them to death. She recently died at the age of 103. So if you haven't yet got it, Perhaps this clue will give it away. This is the song that Pink Floyd sang about this incredible lady. Does anybody here remember Berlin? Remember how she said that we would meet again some sunny day? Ah, <laughs> uh, gee. Vera Lynn, maybe? Why I find this so special, and I'm going to pull a few things together here, but the name, the, the name of the lady who did it, incredible lady, died at the age of 103 was Vera Lynn, Dame Vera Lynn, popular British singer during World War II, and she hosted a BBC radio program called Sincerely Yours, but she would travel to sing that song. It became like the anthem during wartime, and she also made three wartime films. And the song that Pink Floyd did that I played you was called Vera. And if you listen to the lyrics, it is all about that going to war, World War II. And the reason is that Roger Waters' father was actually killed in battle in World War II. Ah, there you go. And he often refers to war in his lyrics. And that whole Vera song by Roger Waters was him referencing Vera Lynn We'll Meet Again, which he sings actually in the Pink Floyd song. Mm. And so I find all that just fascinating. It goes back to all the stuff we talked about with creative writers is where do you find your inspiration from and how do you write a rock song about something that happened back in the 1940s? The other thing that I would say for any parents or partners who have children is there is an incredible series on Netflix called World War II in Colour. Have you seen that yet? I've uh, started watching it. I haven't watched the whole thing, but yeah, I did start watching it. It is quite incredible, isn't it? I number one, the production is incredible. That how do they get that footage and mm. make it the colour? Mm. But they track they track through all the different battles and wars in World War Two. My point is, I think that kids today, who will I suspect in probably year ten or eleven, have to talk about World War Two, mate. All, all my history that I went through school, I learned from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> so I just learned about Socrates, Joan of Arc. That was the extent of it. I had, I had nothing. If I'd have watched that type of documentary 
then done exams, like I've watched it a few times, man, I would have had so much more passion, interest, and learning about our history. I think it's a wonderful thing for families to watch because I think there's so much that we don't know about Pearl Harbor, the Battle of Midway, Battle of the Bulge. I think it's fantastic. And when I see a lady like this and that war, listen to Jocko and Leif talk about it, the World War II was brutal, brutal. When you hear a lady being of service, which is what Bob Berg, the sales guy, talks about, being a go-giver, um, I don't know. I just find this pop quiz ties a whole bunch of stuff together about where do you find your inspiration for creative writing, ties back to Francesca, World War II, being of service. I just think it's an absolute cracker, but I don't think we can play out with we'll meet again. So <laughs> It's not really us, is it? Uh, I'm thinking we should play out with some Floyd. Are you? I'm just not sure what track. Uh, how about some live Pink Floyd, because this is a killer version, uh, and Dogs of War. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.